This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium. I first heard about DeRay McKesson after Ferguson when he became front and center in the Black Lives Matter movement. And then I discovered that we had a number of connections. So it was really interesting to get to know him a little bit. Dre's a very thoughtful guy when it comes to politics, and he's steeped in it. So he had a lot to say about the various Democratic candidates for president. He had previously supported Bernie Sanders. Then he supported Hillary Clinton. Now it sounds like he's interested in supporting Elizabeth Warren. You know, I think Dre McKesson is a very singular human being, and I think there's a lot of future ahead for, for this guy. He's only 34 years old, and he's a figure of national prominence already. He is so thoughtful and so passionate about what he considers needs fixing in this country that I think we're going to be hearing from him for many years to come. Welcome to today's guest, DeRay McKesson, author, activist, and host of the podcast, Pod Save the People. Dre, great to see you. It's so good to be here. So I want to start off and ask you about the news, um, impeachment. And what you think about impeaching President Trump, does that make sense or should we wait to the election in November? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think, if anything, it was odd to see the left sort of slow down the impeachment talk for so long. It was like, impeachment will be bad, it'll divide the country. I mean, that was the message from leading Democrats for a long time. And then we finally get to the Ukraine moment and people are like, oh, that's really bad. You're like, well, he's done a lot of really bad things. So I think it's good that we're moving forward. It is still, uh, still sort of weird to see uh, Trump be so aggressive and so intense and people still be reticent about fighting him. But isn't it the case that the Senate's simply not going to vote to impeach him ultimately? So what's the point? Yes, I think that, you know, people like AOC have it perfect. It's like we have responsibility and we do our part. And we don't just, we don't play the game before the game's played. So they're like, we have responsibility to impeach. When it goes to the Senate, they have to do their part. And if they don't remove, then they don't remove. But that doesn't mean that we actually don't uphold our end of the bargain. We're going to be starting the presidential election season right away. And so the Democrats, man, it's a big field. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I mean, I'll drill down and ask you some specifics, but yeah. just generally speaking. So like Warren, I think if anything, I, I like don't understand the education plans of anybody. I think they're all off. Uh, so that's like one of my issues with Warren's plan. Uh, I think the criminal justice plan is a little narrow. I thought there'd be a bolder idea. But on the whole, I think she's really strong. I think what's interesting about Warren, though, is that she's sort of a victim of her own success when you think about her being a progressive and da-da-da, is that it's interesting, you know, white women actually aren't flocking around Warren, which is like an interesting demographic for her to be losing at this moment. And I think that there's a way that she talks about what the world can be that actually seems a little too aggressive for people, which is sort of odd because what she's saying is sort of basic, right? It's like everybody should have health care. It's like not a radical idea. You shouldn't be mired in debt, not sort of a radical idea. Like these things are actually sort of, we should normalize them. I do think AOC has probably done the best job on the left of saying big ideas in a way that seems really simple, right? Like sort of like, oh, this is like the Amazon thing in New York. She's like, Amazon can afford it. And people are like, you're wild. I can't believe you're going to ruin the economy. So many jobs. And she's like, watch and see. And then what does Amazon do? They come anyway, right? I think that Warren, um, people are receiving Warren as being aggressive. And she does have big ideas, but they are like they're sort of normal ideas that we should be rallying around. 
Pete is interesting to me, uh, not only because he continues to make a whole set of unforced errors, but because he is polling so low amongst black people, but still has a national platform. And that to me, I'm just like confused by, right? So how can you raise so much money? How can you be a contender? And literally you're like at zero or one or 2% amongst black people. And you cannot win. You will not win the denomination without a black support. Uh, I like Bernie. I think Bernie is sort of the same Bernie we saw in 2016. Uh, you know, I, my only struggle with Bernie has always been, I think that the uh, what is there, the how I've always been questioned. I like don't, I never understood. So I think that Bernie can say like what we need to do. When you start to ask sometimes about how we do it, that's when it's just like, I think that, uh, it is a little shaky on that side. Uh, who else? I like Castro. Castro's good. You didn't mention Biden. Oh, uh, you know, because there's a part of Biden that I I understand the bravado because it's like he has won everything he's ever, every race he's been in. He's been elected since I was, before I was born, you know? And there is something about that that he, it's like, why would you run for Brett? Like every, every single time people have counted you out and you've won. I think that... Biden actually benefits from something similar to what Trump benefits from in the sense that you're like, oh, okay, like he just stumbles sometimes. You know, like Biden will like get a fact wrong or like totally misrepresent something or say something really odd. And people are like, oh, that's just Biden. And you're like, okay, that's sort of weird. Uh, I, I think that Biden, I think that we deserve somebody a little more to the left than Biden is. Biden, I think, still plays, uh, still plays politics uh, in a world that was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I don't think he's in... Uh, a 2020 world right now. I think he can be. I think it's sort of a choice to live in the world that he lives in. Who do you think is going to win, though? I think that a Democrat will win. I don't know. I don't think Trump will be president. But I mean, the nomination first, and then uh, okay. we'll talk about. It. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think Warren might eke it out. Uh, I think Biden could win. I think between the two of them, I think either of them could win. And would you support Biden? Uh, yes, I would vote. I'll vote for the nominee. Whoever the nominee is, I'll vote for the nominee. And you think that they will beat President Trump in November? Yeah, I think that they'll be, you know, you think about 2016, there were a lot of people even on the left who participated in, a, in language and a logic that said president doesn't matter, right? Vote local, president really isn't where our fight should be, da 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 And then enter Trump and people realize that that position was a wild position to be in. Like, I'll never forget when I publicly supported Hillary, I wrote this op in the Washington Post, People called me everything but a child. I mean, it was really, from the left, people were like, I can't believe you would sell out like that. You know, like, I don't, I'm like, I believe this man, right? I believe him when he says he's going to do all this damage in the country. But I think those people get it together. I think that people will mobilize out of necessity. And I think that what's interesting about Trump is that the trauma is not ending. Like, he's just sort of keeping it steady, right? Like, keeping his agenda steady. And I think that, like, the closer we get to election time, people realize that, like, whether they like the nominee or not, they just won't survive in a world where he's president. So our country, DeRay, is so divided up right now. It's polarized. And, you know, regardless of where you sit, perhaps even, you might agree with that point. If you're a Republican, you might agree with that. How can this country come back together again? Yeah, I think that uh, I don't even know... I don't know if I think about it as like a coming back together as much as it's a like, what do we do to move forward in a world where everybody uh, can win? You know, like we, nobody loses when everybody can eat. Nobody loses when everybody has access to a doctor. Nobody loses when every kid can read and write. Nobody loses when there's safety in communities and the police don't kill people. And I think there's like this weird logic that language like, divided, it makes it seem like there's going to be winners and losers. And it's like, I think that we can live in a world where like everybody eats breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Like we should normalize this notion that like, 
in the world that we want to build, uh, everybody wins. They do, you know? I think in the world we live in today, there are clear winners and clear losers. There are some people who can afford breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and there's some people who can't. And it's like, we always think about poverty as a political choice. Poverty is not like a inherent necessity of the world. We think about hunger as a political choice. Hunger is not an inherent necessity of the world. These are things that people have allowed to happen. So when I think about how do we get to the other side of these things, it's what I appreciate about a Warren, what I appreciate about a Bernie, is that they have sort of normalized this idea of sort of dreaming big, about saying, you know, Warren could have said, we're going to like, uh, give people more access to loans, right? And that has been a totally fine position for people for a long time. Instead, she was like, no debt. And you're like, okay, right? Like, that is like a big idea, you know? And I think that we're in the, the time, at least on the left, where people, where we have collectively normalized that big ideas are things that we actually deserve. Uh, I think if there's anything that I worry about, I think that there's so many people for whom the system has never done good, has never helped them, has never really worked. And for them, a participation in sort of electoral politics has always seemed futile, futile because it's never really worked for them. And as long as people like that feel like they are on the outside, then we will lose because they won't vote, right? right. Um, or, you know, and this is my fight with Obama the last time we met with him, it's like, Obama is in that era of Democrats who sort of says, like, if you care about the country, vote. If you understand your power, vote. And the reality is, is like, I was one of the people who voted my entire life. I still got tear gas. I got dragged out of a police department by my ankles. The FBI visited my house. It wasn't that, like, voting stopped any of those things from happening. Hmm. We think about voting as, like, one of the tools in a toolbox, right? So what we should be telling people in communities is, like, if you want to change things, vote participate at the local level, go to the school board meeting. Like, it is all of these things, right? You don't build a house with one tool, you right. build a house with a toolbox. So the economy has done really well over the past decade. We're at the end of the decade. For some people. Yeah, well, but they, that's a, maybe a problem. I want to ask you about that because economists look at these broad measures, unemployment, GDP, the stock market, and yet you're unable with those metrics to drill down and actually look at real Americans. I mean, you can see wealth and income inequality. And those ideas and those numbers sort of run counter to these broader measures. So, so how is it? Is America in great shape economically or not? I think it depends on who you ask, right? It's like there are two ways that we can think about poverty. We can either think about poverty as a result of personal choices, or we can think about poverty as a result of structural choices, right? And the people who think about poverty as a result of personal choices, they participate in this logic that's like, economy's fine, right? It is getting better. It is like we're overall net positive. And it's like poverty rates sort of pretty steady, right? It's like not, it hasn't had a huge dramatic decrease in poverty, certainly not childhood poverty, not in inner cities, not when we uh, disaggregate the data around race, when we think about poverty. But I'm always reminded that people didn't choose to be poor. It wasn't like whole communities woke up and they were like, you know what, poverty is my choice today. That isn't, that's not happening, right. right? Structures like forced people into poverty. So I will be impressed about the economy when that changes, right? That's when I'll be like, let me know, right? And you think about what Trump just did in the past couple of weeks is that uh, about 700,000 people are going to get kicked off food stamps, right? right? People who need food assistance from the federal government or people who need help from the federal government. It's like the economy is not getting better for any of those people. So when I think about the overall economy, I am, uh, I'm always wondering who is not captured in that data or how that data normalizes the idea that there just will be losers forever when we think about the economy. I want to think about an economic situation that says 
that there will always be some people who just have more money, that that will be sort of a condition of what an economy probably looks like. But there should be a floor that means that everybody has access to a set of basic necessities and we guarantee it. And the reality is we have the resources and the money. Right. So when people tell me, oh, I don't know how to fund, it's like, you know, we Trump gave $700 billion to the military. That is, we weren't looking for money there. You know, we found it. We could end poverty. We could take everybody uh, out of poverty with $200 billion. So it's never a matter of resources. It's always a matter of do we think the people are worth it. Are billionaires okay in your book? Is it okay to be that rich in America? You know, I don't know how you become a billionaire without relying on a system that exploits people. So the question is not like, the question to me is not are billionaires okay? The question is like, how do you even, what, what structures and systems exist to even allow a billionaire to like come to be? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in that question. And I don't know an answer that is not rooted in some sort of exploitation in some way. So you have a whole set of employees who make minimum wage and you make $200 million a year. Like, I don't, you know, think about WeWork. It's like, how do you get a golden parachute in the billions and then you lay off 1,700 people? That sort of seems like an imbalance to me. You know what I mean? Uh, so I'm interested in that. And it's like, you think about the only way you become a billionaire in this moment is like to do something where you aren't paying taxes in any way that other, you know, you think about Buffett's statement, right? That he's like, I paid less taxes. And you're like, that is wild. You know what I mean? Right, right. Let me ask you a question, Duray. Do you think Donald Trump has done anything good? When I think about uh, good as a moral position to me, and no. Mm. So if we think about good as like something morally upright and upstanding, then I don't think he, I cannot think of something that he has done that has been morally right. Has Trump done something that has probably benefited some people? Sure. The First Step Act has benefited some people, right? The what? I'm sorry? The First Step Act. Mm -hmm. So this was this criminal justice thing. Yes. Do I think he did it because his values align with it? No. Do I think that it was like a, a, a value proposition for him? No. I think it was like a re-election tool. And the thing about the First Step Act that we always remind people is that about 30% of the people who were, were released uh, under the provisions of the First Step Act were actually immediately deported. So that's not even like a holy... That's not even a net positive, right? Because we shouldn't trade drug dealers for immigrants. Like we don't trade out people who are in the car incarceration system. Uh, so I guess that would be like a thing that people have benefited from. I think that if you are rich and white, then I think that he probably has done morally right things for you. I think that there are a host of people who either became millionaires or walked into long fortunes uh, because of government contracts uh, under this administration or that they just benefited from a host of things. So you think about, you know, one of the things that I was talking with somebody about last week is, you probably don't even know this, is that uh, he is deregulating the pork industry. So uh, inspectors, the, the USDA has actually removed inspectors from the pork slaughterhouses. They don't exist anymore. And the slaughterhouses can now inspect themselves. And the USDA has also removed the re requirements around the line speed. So the government actually regulates how many mm -hmm. uh how much pork can be slaughtered in a, in a given moment. Uh, and those regulations are completely gone, right? So the only benefit that that would have is that people can increase the production of pork dramatically, right? But at the cost to workers like limbs and lives. So you think about that industry will probably benefit dramatically financially from what Trump has done, even while the workers are gonna be decimated in the process. Right, well, no doubt, um, wealth and income inequality has to be addressed somehow. and maybe we aren't still doing that in this country, I think. 
Yeah, you know, and this is why I do benefit the national conversation that Warren, uh, Kamala, a host of people have participated in, is that they we, we have finally started to talk about uh, wealth inequality is not the result of personal choices, but the result of a system that made choices for people. And that is a good thing, right? The question is, like, how do we normalize some big ideas around that? So what would it look like to, you know, I live in Baltimore, and it's like, what would it look like to fund the school system equitably? Right. As long as you are, as long as we are, I was the chief of human capital in the school system, and we'd be at cabinet meetings, and it's like, as long as we are choosing between, like, fixing the boiler and putting a elevator in a school or fixing the elevator, like, we're always making these impossible choices, right. you know? Yeah, well, why is, let's talk about Baltimore for a second, because why is the city so messed up? I mean, it became a target for Trump, and then there was the fight with Elijah Cummings, the late Elijah Cummings. But, you know, people have said to me, well, Pittsburgh's not so bad, and other cities aren't so bad. What is it with Baltimore? You know, I think it's a couple of factors with the city. I think that some is leadership. I think that, you know, we have a strong mayor system in Baltimore, which works when you have a great mayor. We haven't had a great mayor in a long time. So when you don't have a great mayor, you are, what you find is like the nonprofit community is always trying to just sort of pick and patch to like keep everything afloat. And I think what we know now that people sort of didn't accept 20, 30 years ago is that programs are good. Mm -hmm. But programs will never, ever deal with a scaled solution because that's not, they, they can't. Mm. So you think about like, why do we need a million programs to feed the homeless under bridges? Is because we've allowed homelessness to flourish. Only a structure can actually do something about homelessness as like a large problem. Programs will deal with like individual people, plug individual gaps, but they just can't scale. So Baltimore has struggled with like, what does it mean? You have a strong mayor system and like, I've been a strong mayor in a long time. I think the second, and I think that uh, some TV shows have popularized like what corruption looks like at the city level that like what happens when everybody is sort of related or there's some sort of financial relate like so we haven't had independent people who like don't benefit from the system who like don't like I think that that has been a real thing mm -hmm. and the third is really money so what happens when uh, the the structure just isn't funded in a way that makes sense. So you think about the school system, a billion dollar organization in the city. School system uh, employs as many people as the city itself, which is sort of wild. The school system has never, ever been equitably funded. So every year the system is like choosing between like, you know, fixing a boiler or buying textbooks or hiring one teacher. You know, you're making a set of impossible choices. And on the top of that, you know, the city's population is at the lowest it's been. Yeah. 600,000 low it'll be 600 that it'll be lower yeah. than 600,000 in the next census right, right. which is wild the yeah. school system is uh, staffed this, there are enough buildings for 100,000 kids and we're around we're a little bit under 80 now so yeah. that is wild depopulation hey let me turn to black lives matter and i want to ask you you know where does that movement stand today what is your role there and maybe even give us sort of a 101 of what the organization is because people i think there's some misconceptions about is it a organization or a movement or exactly what is it? Yeah, so I think about it as a movement. So what does it mean when people come together who share a single idea? And you think about in 2014, uh, after the death of Mike Brown, people all across the country mobilized. Uh, it would have been in Ferguson. In Ferguson, yep. Would have been impossible without Ferguson, which is what I was to say. And I think about Ferguson as a phenomenon, right? It was this moment where everything aligned. It was like the right people. It was uh, Twitter. It was sort of a media landscape that was interested in a story. It was all this stuff happened. And the protest spread across the country, as you know, and people started to call it Black Lives Matter. Uh, what called people to the street originally was the idea of uh, police violence and this idea that we can live in a world without, without police or without the police killing people at the very least. And I think that that idea is still present. I'm mindful that the civil rights movement was a decade-long worth of activism. 
uh, and wearing your five since the protests began. You know, if anything, when I think, when I worry about the narrative that people have, is people participate in this narrative that said that like three people started a movement or one person started a movement. And what was so beautiful about St. Louis is that uh, so many people came outside and like that is the birth of a movement. This is not the civil rights movement. It was not started by schools. It wasn't born out of churches. It was people. And it's such a reductive narrative to say that a trio or one person sort of started a whole movement, that that actually erases the work of so many incredible people. But when we think about the issue of police violence, it's uh, what is sort of sobering is that the police have actually killed more people since the protests, not less, which is wild. And Since Ferguson. Since 2014, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third of all the people killed by a stranger in the United States is actually killed by a police officer, which is also sort of wild. And this is the first year ever where black people are more afraid of being killed by a police officer than being killed by community violence. So the question becomes, what do we do? And I think that what we know now that we didn't know in 2014 is that the structure has to change. I think that we thought that like if we brought attention to it, things would sort of move. And we realized that the attention actually hasn't moved the structure. So I'll give you an example here in New York City, and I'm sure you know de Blasio. You obviously know Garner, who got killed by the police yep, here. Eric Garner. And you know that Pantaleo got fired. The officer got mm-hmm. fired not too long ago. Is that chokeholds got banned in 1993 in New York City by Ray Kelly, who was not a progressive police chief in by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but banned then. Uh, de Blasio lifted the ban on chokeholds in 2016. Shooting and moving vehicles got banned in 1972 in New York City. De Blasio lifted the ban on shooting and moving vehicles in 2016. And in 2016, de Blasio also removed the requirement that deadly force be used as a last resort. Mm-hmm. So New York City is actually less safe for civilians than it was mm-hmm. uh, before Garner gets killed. Uh, the CCRB would have never been able to actually fire Pantaleo if uh, the rules that de Blasio put in place in 2016 had been in effect uh, when Garner gets killed. So you actually see people like de Blasio publicly saying, oh, I'm standing with the family, we need justice, at the same time that he's actually rolling back the requirements that actually restrict the use of force by the NYPD. Right. Let me ask you about a demonstration that you were involved in in Baton Rouge, and there's a court case now. The ACLU wants the Supreme Court to take this up, which is to say you were being sued by a Baton Rouge police officer for being part of a riot where a rock was thrown and hit him and injured him. They're not saying that you threw the rock, but just that you were there and encouraged the, the riot, so that makes you culpable for his injury. Where, where, first of all, do I have that right? And second of all, where do things stand with that? Yeah, so that was the claim. So I got sued by five police officers in two cities. Uh, we got them all dismissed, which was good. Uh, one of the cases, this John Doe, the officer said he was so afraid for his safety that he is John Doe, so it's Doe v. McKesson. He appealed to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit overruled the dismissal and said that I can be held civilly negligent for this officer being hit by rock. Uh, we have appealed. We just petitioned the Supreme Court uh, on Friday last week. And the reason that we did this is that you know, if this ruling stands and the Supreme Court doesn't reverse the decision of the Fifth Circuit, then it means that any organizer for any cause in any city can be held liable for any injury that happens. So say, for example, you know, you're doing a rally about something, some random person comes in and throw a bottle and you were the organizer, the person that gets hit by that bottle could sue you. That is wild. You know, that would just stifle any sort of organizing, any sort of protest at this if this uh, ruling becomes precedent across the country, or even if it becomes precedent in the Fifth Circuit where 33 million people live. Uh, so that's why we're petitioning. And if the court hears it, it'll be the first case since the civil rights movement's uh, defining case around the right to protest. And where do you think it's going to end up? I mean, 
how hopeful are you, I guess, for the Supreme Court to rule in your favor? Well, I'm hopeful because there's not been a case like this that has actually come before the court in a very long time, almost since the 60s when the original case came before the court. I think that we all were surprised at the intensity with which the Fifth Circuit sort of held its decision, uh, especially because it is a decision that we think goes contrary to established case law around this issue. Let me ask you about technology, DeRay. Um, A lot has changed. You use Twitter. Uh, iPhones are used in protests to document what the police is doing or just when the police um, are taking action against someone. It's a very powerful tool. And you're also the host of a podcast. So how has this changed the work of an activist, I guess? Yeah, I think that what's cool about it is that no longer do we have to wait for mainstream media to tell us that the idea works or to be the arbiter or to validate something. We actually can go straight to people ourselves, which is a which is a huge win. I think about the protests is that if I had to wait for a newspaper reporter to believe in the story I was telling, we would have been screwed in the street, especially because at the beginning, you know, people didn't believe us. People thought we were dramatic. They didn't think the police were dramatic. But we could tell our story in real time, and that was unbelievably powerful. The second thing is that I'm mindful that this work is two-pronged, that some of it is storytelling, some of it is structural. We talked about the structural, but the second is actually like pushing people to imagine the world a little differently. So, you know, you think about you probably jaywalked before, right? You probably have. Uh, been over the street. True confessions. Is that like I, I, say, I say that because the reality is like you've you're a criminal, right? You have totally committed a crime. Yep. But when we when we work with people, you say to them like, you know, what do we do about criminal justice? They often think about like those people. They're like, what do we do with those, those people, the criminals? And it's like, what we do with people who've committed crimes is not about what we do with those people. It's actually about what we do with each other because you wake up every day and look at somebody who has broken a crime. The reality is that like we don't all have criminal records. That is a difference, that the enforcement apparatus of the government is what's different. Do you think about New York City, 90% of the people arrested in New York City uh, for smoking weed are black and brown. And you and I both know it's just not black and brown people in the city smoking weed, right? Right. So, so much of our work is a storytelling, is like shaping narratives, is helping people think about the world differently. And that would not be possible if we weren't in control of the mechanisms. Let me ask you a little bit about leadership, DeRay. You were class presidents growing up in many of your classes. That's my understanding. And I know you're a class president at Bowdoin College. And school president. Right, and school president. So what is it that you sort of look to do personally to put yourself into a leadership role like that? I think one is know the content well. You know, I know a lot about the police. I knew a lot about the stuff uh, when I was in school. So you know, and I think about what it means to walk into the room and lead is like some of it is the only way that you can put the pieces together is knowing enough of what the content is so that you can actually be thoughtful and you can make decisions that make a lot of sense. The second is to remember that uh, you're only as strong as the people around you. So how do you share power has to be a big part of it. So I think about in the protests, you know, and this is the work that people never see. It's like so much of my work is like connecting people. Like today I got to, I'm on the board of Rock the Vote and I got a call from somebody that was like, you know, this big organization wants to do something around voting. Can you connect us? So like so much of it is like, how do I share uh, the access that I have? How do I like make sure you talk to this person? Or I think you two can do something really cool together. How can I put you two in the room? That that is actually a key part of it. I think that what the worst leaders do is that they hoard power, that they sort of make everything flow through them and da da I think the third is this idea that uh, is that how do we model believing in people in ways that allow them to do whatever their magic is? So I think about what was so cool about the protest for me as somebody who had been in all these roles before, 
is that some of the most important people are like 19, 18, people who I would have never been peers with in a professional setting because I was doing something in school systems. So they would have been too young to be a senior leader in a school system. But all of a sudden we're like in the street together. And it's like, that mm -hmm. was a great idea. And your great idea was not sort of filtered through your age. It wasn't filtered through your, your gender or your sexuality. It was like, this is a great idea, you know? Right. And I think that the, the more leaders create space for anybody, regardless of role, regardless of any identity marker, to like put a great idea in this space, like I think that we all win. You have a picture of yourself, a portrait in the National Portrait Gallery, right? How cool is that? It was really surreal. You know, I turned the corner. It was I just saw it for the first time. Uh, so I turned the corner and uh, I'm trying to take a picture and this tour comes and the docent is like, he's like, that's you. And I'm like, it is me. You know, so yeah. it was really sweet, uh, very kind. A photographer took the photo of me after I gave a talk at a, I just gave a talk somewhere. And I get this email being like, can we do a photo? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm like, okay. And then he submitted the photo to this, uh, this competition at the National Portrait Gallery and they selected it. So uh, big honor. Blue Patagonia vest in the portrait. You always wear that. Why is that? And does Patagonia like sponsor you? Patagonia does not sponsor me, <laughs> uh, though that that's a rumor. <laughs> is uh, you know this is one of the only things I have from the protests from when we were in the streets, and it reminds me that same I'm, one, same one. Yeah, they just fixed it, so it looks much better today. Uh -huh. uh, but it's the same one, and it was I kept wearing it after we left those initial street. Uh, moments because it reminded me that everything we went through was real. You know, I think about what did my phone was hacked. The first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for raising money to try and kill me. I think about all the things that have happened in the past five years, and I never want to forget that they're real. I am so blessed to be able to do things like this and talk to you and, and be in so many rooms, and I never want to forget what it was like when it was illegal to stand still in the middle of the street, what it was like, that, what it was like when we slept in cars. And no, like, I don't want to forget that, and this is like my way of carrying it with me. What about the future for you, DeRay, finally? And you ran for mayor of Baltimore. That didn't work out. Where do you see yourself 20 years from now? I think we'll win. I think that we'll look back and be like, wow, it was really hard to sort of push this idea of policing in a world without the police. And uh, I think that we'll get there. Hopefully it doesn't take 20 years. I think that we're actually on the precipice. I think what's interesting about the police is that a lot, there's so many myths out there. So like, what do you think it means when the police solve a crime? Like, what do you think happens? Like, what are the ingredients of solve? Well, they do work, arrest someone, take them to court, the trial, person's found guilty, it's all tied up with a bow. Yep. So what it actually means all across the country is that it just means that at least one arrest was made. Mm -hmm. That is all solve means, which is like not what anybody would think solve means, right? So when you look around the country and you're like, oh, the police solved 20% of the crimes, you're like, that just means they made an arrest. That doesn't mean they arrested the right person. doesn't mean they tracked conviction. You know, so what people think is happening in police departments is actually sort of interestingly not happening. And the reality is, is that the police, the best the police can do is get there after the bad things already happen. We actually want to live in a world where the bad things don't happen in the first place. So most of the work about safety is actually not about policing. It's about, it's about poverty and addiction. So when we think about the end of uh, the end of crime, the end of crime is actually the end of poverty and the end of addiction. It's not the presence of police. Seems like you might have quite a bit of work in front of you then. A lot of work for us to do. Right. All right, Duray McKesson, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Sirworth.